0: So here we are on this third day of Golden Wind Session. The leaves continue to fall. Our minds continue to settle. Little by little, the jihatsu bowls are quieter, our footsteps barely audible. It seems a pity to disturb this session silence with my Dharma talk. So please forgive me. Recently I've been reading the poems of Wieslava Szymborska and I found one that seems very apt for session. And I've asked if Karyosan would be so kind as to read it in the original Polish and then I will read an English translation which is translated by Stanislav Baranzak and Claire Kavanaugh. Trzy słowa najdziwniejsze. Kiedy wymawiam słowo przyszłość, pierwsza sylaba. Gdy wymawiam słowo cisza niszczę ją. Kiedy wymawiam słowo nic stwarzam coś co nie mieści się w żadnej niczyj. The three oddest words. When I pronounce the word future the first syllable already belongs to the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. When I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. One of the things I love about coming to Dai Basatsuzindo is the wide array of languages that are spoken here. And this past Thanksgiving, I remember we were in the dining room, having a wonderful celebration. And I was so struck in this one room, walking around, socializing, I heard German, Spanish, Dutch, English, and Farsi. All these little conversations happening on those times when we can converse here. And it's truly, a universal sangha. I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful too that we begin our morning service with the pali atta viharata. And then we hear Sino Japanese and English and interspersed in there. We have Sanskrit and these mystical Dharanis. And the Heart Sutra is so beautiful. And the way we do it is wonderful. The Mukugyo, it sounds like a heartbeat. And we only really, um, during session, and, and during morning service, we hear the English translation. And for those of us who only speak English, um, we kind of miss the fact that we're reciting the Heart Sutra before our morning and evening meals. We, we recite it um, a lot. And it's such a beautiful sutra. And oftentimes when we've learned a translation we don't always listen to it because we think, okay, this is how it's translated and I've I've memorized the translation and we're not reciting it from our heart. And um, I love to go to different sanghas and hear the way they translate certain sutras, subtle differences, subtle observations on what words to bring forth. And recently I came upon uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's translation of the Heart Sutra. And I thought I'd read it and maybe we could really listen to it, not compare it to the translation we use or think with a comparing mind how it fits in to our understanding, and just listen to it as though for the first time. The insight that brings us to the other shore. Avalokitesvara, while practicing deeply with the insight that brings us to the other shore, suddenly discovered that all the five skandhas are equally empty. And with this realization, he overcame all ill-being. Listen, Sariputra. This body itself is emptiness, and emptiness itself is this body. This body is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than this body same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Listen, Sariputra, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement no purity, no increasing, no decreasing. This is why in emptiness, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness are not separate self-entities. The 18 realms of phenomena, which are the six sense organs, the six sense objects, the six sense The six consciousnesses are also not separate self-entities. The twelve links of interdependent arising and their extinction are also not separate self-entities. Ill-being, the cause of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path, Insight and attainment are also not separate self-entities. Whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. Bodhisattvas who practice the insight that brings us to the other shore see no more obstacles in their mind, and because there are no more obstacles in their mind... They can overcome all fear, destroy all wrong perceptions, and realize perfect nirvana. All Buddhas in the past, present, and future, by practicing the insight that brings us to the other shore, are all capable of attaining authentic, perfect enlightenment. Therefore, Sariputra, it should be known that the insight that brings us to the other shore is a great mantra, the most illuminating mantra, the highest mantra, a mantra beyond compare, the true wisdom that has the power to put an end to all kinds of suffering. Therefore, let us proclaim a mantra to praise the insight that brings us to the other shore Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhiswaha. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhiswaha. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhiswaha. The sangha is such a jewel. We are the ones that help each other get to the other side. And so often, we, it's as if we're on either banks of a roaring river. How do I get to the other side? You are on the other side. <laughs> It's not that difficult, apparently, yet. There is difficulty. Another reason I particularly love autumn on Daibosatsu Mountain is that it was in autumn, six years ago, that I ordained as a Buddhist monk. And if you had asked me twenty-four years ago when I first came here on an HIV AIDS weekend retreat if I would be sitting here giving a Dharma talk. (laughs) True delusion And yet, and I am so grateful for Shinge to Shinge Roshi for opening this door of monasticism for me. I think I first met Shinge Roshi. Um, She was not yet called Shinge Roshi. Um, I had been coming to the healing and wellness retreat for many many years and I then became the coordinator of it and I thought well you know I I come to this every year and I know it's a lot of effort on the part of the residents to prepare for this wonderful retreat that involves the floating of lanterns and the building of beautiful bonfires and uh, a lot of celebration. And so I thought, well, I'm taking on this responsibility for this group. I'm going to come and help the, the people that are making this happen for us. So I came a week early and helping out. And I really didn't know a whole lot about the differences of Buddhist practice I had um been familiar with Tibetan practice and Vipassana um and Zen, but I didn't quite understand this whole Zen thing, and I remember I was sitting at the informal meal um, must have been right after uh a big oban the the Oban prior to. Healing and Wellness, which is a week before, and I was sitting next to this very nice woman with gray hair, and she introduced herself. She said, hi, my name is Roko, but you can call me Sherry, and that was Shinge Roshi, and I thought, oh, well, here's someone I can talk to, and that whole week I was asking, pulling her aside to go, hey, Sherry, I have a question for you. What's with the bibs with the teething rings? you know what's all this and and we um sort of connected on um, on um, that that week and i learned about her and her father was in world war 2 my father was in world war 2 and she is about the same age as my oldest sister i'm the youngest of nine children so there was always this I often see not just an abbot, I see a big sister sitting there and I'm so grateful for that and you know at the time first coming to DBZ in the height of the AIDS crisis it was a truly traumatic time to be a person living with HIV and AIDS. Um, it, It is still But at that time, um, truly horrifying. Um, I I sympathize with these people who are, their children are taken away and put in in prisons um, because they don't have the right papers. And I think back to the time in in the 80s when there was actually debate among senators in Congress about possibly tattooing people who had HIV so that people would know to stay away from them. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And fortunately things have changed a little bit, but there's still a tremendous amount of ignorance. And this place, at a time when Even some doctors and nurses wouldn't enter the hospital rooms of people with HIV. This monastery opened its doors. Um, People covered in lesions, weighing 85 pounds, IV poles. Um, And I'm so grateful for this... family and so I began practicing here and 24 years ago and then 6 years ago ordaining and I remember uh When asking Shinge Roshi to ordain, I had um, been the Jisha for a uh, session. It was shortly after she was installed as abbot. And it was the final day of session and I um, was really just going into the Dokusan room to inform her that everyone was seen and we could close the session and have the informal meal. And I didn't have anything to present to her as far as a koan. And um, so I went in there and I thought, well, she's sitting there. I should ask her something. <laughs> and I said, uh, Rosha, you ordained later in life, yes? And she said, yes. Ryoju, would you like to ordain? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> and that yes came from the bottom of Beecher Lake. I had no preconceived expectations about ordaining. was not even on my radar. And here I am. And uh, I'm particularly grateful to Roshi because she took on the responsibility of being abbot at a very tumultuous and painful time in our sangha. And it would have been so easy to run away, but she didn't. And I often think about that when deep into session and i'm just so miserable because this is just not the right cushion you know they're really oh there's and you know and really this session is great but it's not necessary to do anymore i mean it's 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 fine it's fine and if we all had that attitude if Shinge Roshi had that attitude who knows whether or not we'd even be here delving into the silence that is the great vow that she has Thank you. and um i read the translation of tiknat han's uh understanding of the Heart Sutra. and This is something that also Thich Nhat Hanh wrote that is, I think, very appropriate. I'd like to share it with you. One autumn day I was in a park, absorbed in the contemplation of a very small but beautiful leaf in the shape of a heart. Its color was almost red, and it was barely hanging on the branch, nearly ready to fall down. I spent a long time with it, and I asked the leaf a lot of questions. I found out the leaf had been a mother to the tree. Usually, we think of a tree as the mother and the leaves, as just children. But as I looked at the leaf, I saw the leaf is also the mother of the tree. The sap that the roots take up is only water and minerals, not good enough to nourish the tree. So the tree distributes that sap to the leaves. The leaves take the responsibility of transforming that rough sap into refined sap. And with the help of the sun and gas sending it back in order to nourish the tree. Therefore, the leaves are also the mother to the tree. And since the leaf is linked to the tree by a stem, the communication between them is easy to see. I asked the leaf whether it was scared because it was autumn and the other leaves were falling. The leaf told me, No, during the whole spring and summer I was very alive. I worked hard and helped nourish the tree, and much of me is in the tree. Please do not say that I am just this form, because this leaf form is only a tiny part of me. I am the whole tree. I know that I am already inside the tree, and when I go back to the soil, I will continue to nourish the tree. That's why I do not worry. As I leave this branch and float to the ground I will wave to the tree and tell her I will see you again very soon. The Japanese poet hermit monk Ryokan says the same thing in his death poem. Now it reveals its hidden side, and now the other. Thus it falls an autumn leaf. When I received this Buddhist attire and shaved my head and left a little teeny patch of hair for Shinge Roshi to finish the job. I wrote a poem that I'd like to share with you. Through the falling leaves bright sun dancing on the blade of the pruning hook. I'd like to read a little something from the Dhammapada. Um, it's translated by Eckhart Warren, um, though this is the uh, actually a, a chapter introduction, which is translated by Stephen Rupenthal. It has been said that Buddhism is essentially a psychology of desire. The second noble truth proclaims selfish desire or craving as the cause of all suffering in life. And its importance in Buddhist thought is evident in the fact that the Buddha uses at least 15 terms for it. The chief of these is Trishna, which literally means thirst. It is an apt word for a tropical country like India, The intense craving for water on a scorching, dry day makes a vivid metaphor for the fiercest of human drives. Trishna is that force which drives all creatures to seek personal satisfaction of their urges at any cost, even at the expense of others. It is the deadliest and subtlest of snares because its gratification almost always brings a surge of satisfaction reinforcing the compulsion to act on that desire again. It is only later that the consequences of pursuing self-centered desires begin to burn like coals smoldering under the ashes. I remember one time um, when my mother was well into her 80s and um, she needed someone with her all the time. We hired a companion and on the weekends um, I would sometimes uh, stay with her and my brothers and sisters would stay in the evening. We all took turns and she didn't really go out much at all and um, the companion that we had hired to um, care for her convinced her to go to this little party they were having at the senior center in her town. And so she went and they were having like a potluck and um, she was uh, signed up to bring soda. And so she went with her, her uh, health care aide and went to the party. And then when they came back, I said, Oh, ma, how was the party? And she was like, Oh, this woman... She said that I was supposed to bring cookies, and I brought soda, and I always bring soda. I I haven't made cookies in 20 years. I was, and then she said I was, it was okay. I was just having a senior moment, and everybody laughed, and I was right, and I was like, oh, that's too bad, but how was the party? She goes, oh, but that woman, oh, I'm never going to go to another party there again. She was so upset, and I was like, oh, okay, okay, and then, And then the phone rings a little while later and it's my sister and she's like, oh, hi. Oh, this woman. She said I was supposed to bring cookies. I never bring cookies. I always bring soda. I was so mad. And then she calmed down and then later on the phone rings again and it's another sibling. I have eight siblings. So... Um, again, oh, cookies, soda, and the phone rings again a few hours later, and I pick it up and I go, hi, listen, don't ask her about the party. And my sister says, what do you mean she hasn't gone out in six months? This is all she's talked about. I'm going to ask her about the party. She so asked her about the party, oh, this woman, cookies, soda, and all day, and then she would calm down and she was at, you know, this age that we may get to or there's a little mental and physical frailty, but she was really obsessing about this. And finally, toward the end of the day, I was like, Mom, look, I know it's upsetting and it's very aggravating, but, um, you know, it's really causing you tremendous distress. Maybe we should just let it go. I mean, do you want to be happy Or do you want to be right? And without hesitation, I want to be right. (laughs) This little old lady, no bigger than a rabbit. I want to be right. Just, poof. And we all have that little old lady in us. I want to be right. And that's what this self does. Always rearing up its head. And so, Uh, This introduction continues, any activity undertaken for personal aggrandizement, any human activity or institution that promotes one person or a group at the expense of another, the Buddha would trace to the root cause of of selfish desire. As often the determining factor is the mental state behind the activity, the motivation for profit, power, pleasure, prestige, position, even more than the activity itself. In Buddhist psychology, each desire is an isolated moment of mental activity, a dharma in Buddhist technical technical vocabulary, rising up in the mind. It can be ignored, or one can choose to yield to it. If one yields to it, the next wave of desire will have greater power to compel attention and the mental agitation it causes will be more intense. On the other hand, if one chooses to defy a strong desire, the pain can be considerable. However, if one succeeds in not giving in to selfish desires as they arise, the mind Gradually quiets down, leaving a longer and longer interval between waves of desire in which the mind is calm. This calmness is our natural birthright, a state beyond the suffering entangled with desires. All the Buddha's teachings come round to this one practical point to find permanent joy. We have to learn how to yield, how not to yield to selfish desire. This conclusion is so contrary to human nature that is, it is not surprising to hear even experts maintain that in preaching the extinction of desire, the Buddha was denying everything that makes life worth living. But trishna does not mean all desire. It means selfish desire, the conditioned craving for self-aggrandizement. Far from denigrating desire, the Buddha knew it is the power of desire that fuels progress on the noble eightfold path. He distinguishes raw, unregulated, self-directed trishna from the unselfish and uplifting desire to dissolve one's egotism in self-service of others. The person who makes no effort to go against the base craving of personal satisfaction is headed for more bondage and more sorrow. But he can transform such cravings into virya, vigor, which is intense desire directed toward spiritual growth. The very first session I did um maybe sometime in the early 2000s and i had so much pain physical emotional and um i was basically just cried the whole session and crying is is really really good you know we need to cry crying is essential on the path but for me personally you know being the youngest of nine children I had a different relationship with crying this is I realized at a very young age that my tears uh, were a valuable currency in the marketplace of the ego I could really get anything I wanted, and though there was um, still sincere sorrow and anguish, um, a lot of the tears were just, oh. <laughs> And I would go in to see Edo Roshi, and, and I would do my prostrations, and I was like, I have eight. I'm going blind, all my friends are dying oh, 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 oh. And he would listen, and then he'd say something like, "Ah, oh, yes, life, death, the great corn oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd go back to my seat and I'd cry some more, and you know uh didn't even you know think about the other people around me oh, it was just. The self it was such a wonderful session for the self. I was in so much pain <clears throat> and and then I'd go in to see Ada Roshi again, yeah, <laughs> And then finally, in the sometime in the middle of session, and you know there were a, a lot of um, people to see and with in, in, uh, the the NG instructed us be be brief and and succinct and and you know. State your business and leave. And I walk in and I do my prostrations. I'm like, and she goes, no need for drama. <laughs> and the tears just dried up. I was like, what do you mean, no need for drama? What do you think I'm putting this on? Oh, and I was just so mad. I turned into that little old lady. Hur-ru, and I sat, went back to the center. I just sat there, like, all day, didn't go, didn't go. The next duka oh, I'm not gonna see him. And all day, just so mad, and not a single tear. And then, in the evening, at the end, Aido Roshi walks in, and whether it was the light flickering on his, can you know the the candle in the zendo or the robe, and I I was, I was thinking as soon as I heard his footsteps, I was like. No need for drama. There's no room for drama with you around. <laughs> and as he passed me, and I had this thought, arrgh, these blue lights just went poof, poof, poop. It was like the, what are the rods or the cones in the eyes or whatever? They just, everything opened. And it had nothing to do with him Nothing to do with me, it just had to do with the fact I cried, I didn't cry, I sat, I stuck with it. And that's what we're doing. We have to stick with it even when it's not what we want. Because what we want is not always... the thing that brings this joy. Joseph Goldstein, who's a Vipassana teacher, um, writes very beautifully in his book, Mindfulness. One of our deepest conditions and the source of so much suffering in our lives comes from one basic misguided perception, which is the mind-created concept of the self. This is the idea that there is someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. We recognize a pattern of physical and mental elements, call it Joseph or self, and then fail to look past the perceived pattern, not seeing that these concepts are only a designation for an arising appearance of complex interactions. Imagine for a moment a great summer storm. There is wind and rain, thunder and lightning, but there is no storm apart from these elements. Storm is simply the concept or designation for the interrelated mix of phenomena. In the same way, when we look more closely at what we are calling self, we see a, con- a constellation of rapidly changing element, each one of which is itself momentary and insubstantial. Understanding our experience through the lens of the five aggregates helps us realize for ourselves the fundamental selfless nature of all phenomena. And we can, we do that with our attention. The um, French philosopher Simone Weil um, had a wonderful quote that really has stuck with me, and I've been thinking about it a lot Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. We think of attention often, we associate it with these verbs like um, uh, grabbing attention, holding attention. We have the furrowed brow, it's the blinders are on. But attention is, um, it's vast, it's open. You know, we, and there's a sense of generosity in True attention, and we can see that you know when the ten, when the food, this delicious food, comes down the table, we could see the attentive, pure generosity of the tenzos, you know, um, when the eno announces the page numbers, you know, oh, thank you, thank you, how kind, when the jishas pour the tea, or lay out the sweets after the. Evening meal, oh, wonderful, wonderful. But when the Eno doesn't announce the page numbers, that's even kinder. Because Eno-san is saying, you can do it. Go ahead. I'm going to give you that space for you to, where am I? What's next? What's next? And everything, all the responsibilities of the officers, that's um, real generosity. You know, when the um, we hear the Shinrei bell at 4 theater in the morning, we might want to go, Oh, I want to take that and just shove it up. Oh, what time is it? You know, but that's generosity. That's true generosity. Getting up, being, filling the... Uh, preparing the altars, having everything set so that, okay, you've been able to sleep in. Now, now go ahead. I'll wake you up. That's generosity. And when uh, Jigijitsu-san says, be still. Be quiet. Wake up. That's so kind. That's so generous. There's no judgment in that. There's no pointing the finger, you're wrong. We all move, whether we're moving on the outside or on the inside, all of us can benefit from that reminder. Be still. Wake up. We need to not view things through the lens of the self. And then we can really truly see What's in front of us? I started with a poem by Vyeslava Szymborska. I've been practicing that pronoun- pronunciation because <clears throat> the way it's written, it's Wislawa Szymborska. But it's... V- v- Say the name. Vyslava Szymborska. There you go. <clears throat> <laughs> See? Attention. Attention. So this is her poem... View with a Grain of Sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name, whether general, particular, permanent, passing, incorrect, or apt. Our glance, our touch, mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched And that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else with no assurance that it has finished falling or that it is falling still. The window has a wonderful view of the lake, but the the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, Shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor plural. They splash deaf to their own noise, on pebbles neither large nor small. And all this, beneath a sky, by nature, skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, a third. But there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news. But that's just our simile. The character is invented. His haste is make-believe. His news. Inhuman. So this attention which we are giving to our practice, and um, to finish the that quote uh, from Simone Weil. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Attention, taken to its highest degree, is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. If we turn our mind toward the good, it's impossible that little by little the soul will not be attracted here too in spite of itself. and I'd like to share a, uh, a closing poem and um, for some reason this poem reminds me of Reiko so I will subtitle it Reiko's poem but it's, <clears throat> it's by Mary Oliver the place I want to get back to The place I want to get back to is where in the pine woods, in the moments between the darkness and the first light, two deer came walking down the hill, and when they saw me, they said to each other, Okay, this one is okay. Let's see who she is and why she is sitting on the ground like that, so quiet as if asleep or in a dream. But anyway... Harmless. And so they, they come on their slender legs and gaze upon me and me, not unlike the way I go out to the dunes and look and look and look into the faces of the flowers, and then one of them leaned forward and nuzzled my hand, and what can my life bring me that could exceed that brief moment? For 20 years, I have gone every day to the same woods, not waiting exactly, just lingering. Such gifts bestowed cannot be repeated. If you want to talk about this, come to visit. I live in the house near the corner, which I have named Gratitude.